China's digital yuan testing phase is beginning to look like a full-scale rollout. Could this push the U.S. to move ahead with its own CBDC? I think China was a little bit of a wake-up call to the U.S. as they as they were starting to move so quickly. The United States is going to beat China not by trying to out-China China with their you know central bank focused digital currency, but instead it's what we're already doing. We're seeing the proliferation of dollar-backed stable coins. How could U.S. crypto regulations influence the rest of the world? And have the Russian elite been able to use digital assets to evade sanctions? Coming up on Word on the Block, Kristen Smith, executive director of U.S. headquartered Blockchain Association, joins in to dive deep into those topics and a whole lot more. The market for cryptocurrencies and digital assets is worth trillions of dollars today, and it's the promise of decentralization and self-custody of one's assets that's led to its explosive growth. But it is exactly because of these features that some call it the wild, wild west, and how governments, regulators, policymakers are thinking about it will be critical to the next phase of growth. Question is, do they get it? Welcome to The Word on the Block, the series that takes a deeper dive into blockchain and all the emerging technologies that shape our world at the intersection of business, politics, and economy. It's what we cover right here on Forecast News. I'm Editor-in-Chief Angie Lau. Welcome, everyone. Well, today we are in conversation with the person who is leading the conversation when it comes to blockchain advocacy and education. Kristen Smith, Executive Director at the Blockchain Association, one of the uh, most prolific uh, lobby and industry groups uh, that we have in the industry today. And we really appreciate you joining us, Kristen. It's great to be here, Angie. The crypto industry is really focusing on Washington. Uh, We have President Biden's crypto executive order released in March, urging the government to research and develop a dollar-based CBDC. We've been reporting, as you know, Kristen, we've been talking about it uh, here at Forecast with you. China's already in the final stages of its CBDC pilot. Question is, can the U.S. catch up? How soon could we see the first iteration of a digital dollar? How, how far along is the United States? Well, the United States is going to beat China, not by trying to out-China China, with their you know, central bank focused digital currency, but instead it's what we're already doing. We're seeing the proliferation of dollar backed stable coins. So these are a digital wrapper that goes around the dollar. There's a real true dollar hidden away in a bank account, kept safe, and it's allowing people to take the advantages of crypto networks and digital assets with the speed, the near instant settlement, the ability to do macro payments and micro payments, all of the features that we would want in a central bank digital currency already exist today due to private sector innovation uh, working hand in hand with regulators in order to or in order to find the right environment for these dollar backed stable coins. So I think we're actually winning. And I think, you know, today we have a pretty prolific marketplace where stable coins are the main source for getting in and out of crypto positions for crypto trading. But now we're starting to see these also be used for payments. And I think in the next six to 12 months, there's going to be a massive shift 
in the way that we share money with our friends, in the way that we do payments in business. You know, you've been on the ground there in D.C. It really felt like this was off the table for a very long time. That was the language coming out of a lot of policymakers, including the Federal Reserve as well. How much did China's efforts in advanced CBDC pilot actually hasten or speed up these conversations? What was the impetus or the catalyst from no, we're just checking things out to it becoming an executive order. Yeah, well, I think, listen, the executive order is interesting because it touches on a lot of different topics related to digital assets. And there are some where there are concerns like illicit finance that they want to make sure the right protections are in place to prevent that kind of activity. But then there are questions posed about how can we use this to make the world, our system more inclusive. The government is really looking at the whole ecosystem to decide if one is needed, if so, what it would look like, what are the design choices. And even in Secretary Yellen's speech uh, in April, she did not um, conclude that a CBDC was the right choice, that the government is definitely in the investigative phase. I think... Um, I think China was a little bit of a wake-up call to the U.S. as they as they were starting to move so quickly. I think when then Facebook announced the then Libra project back in 2019, that also really caught the attention of U.S. government officials. We're at a phase now where there's a lot of smaller, individual, thoughtful companies that are building to provide these solutions. They're being built upon these publicly owned, decentralized networks, and and I think. The discussion we're having is one of how can we responsibly innovate in this space to allow this innovation to thrive while protecting consumers. And and that's a real narrative shift, particularly from where we were in the last administration. Yeah, and and certainly there was a sense you know, we saw a lot of lawsuits filed against projects, uh, and there was a lot of sense that policy was being written by enforcement, and there wasn't an opportunity to actually be uh, at least even a sandbox uh, at the SEC. Do you think that that's going to change uh, with this executive order and the environment? You know, you have to feel a little bit sorry for all of these federal regulators, right? You have something so new that comes along like crypto networks, and they have a responsibility to enforce the the laws that their agency are tasked with, with enforcing. And it's not always clear cut as to how this works. And so the SEC has tried to create a lot of policy through enforcement actions. From the industry perspective, that is not ideal. We would much rather see the rules of the road laid out clearly and a a pathway forward for figuring out how to do that. I think the good news is that we're in a place right now where crypto policy has caught the attention of Congress. There are members on both sides of the aisle in both the House and the Senate that have really become captivated with the potential of this space, and they want to be a part of the legislative solution. If you back up a year or more ago, Congress was, with the exception of a small number of champions, they didn't want to be bothered with this. They were like, this is too complicated. That has shifted. I think with the um, you know development of these payment tokens, these stable coins, I think with the uh, proliferation of non-fungible tokens or NFTs that we've seen this past year, they're realizing that this is 
not just the foundation for a new financial services system, but also the foundation for a new and better internet. And they want to figure out how to do it. Uh, They're excited by the innovation. I think what we're going to see is probably what we really need. We, We are going to engage through this executive order process and through working with Congress to get a new law passed that will clarify these gray areas that the agencies have had to work within. I think it's going to be a long process. I think it's going to take many years. But right now, because of the executive order that President Biden issued, there is a thoughtful process that focuses on key public policy objectives. There's no prejudging of what the outcome should be or how the regulation should work. It's really like, let's figure out the risks and find the regulation to address the risks in a way that doesn't unfairly advantage a new technology, but also is tailored for the risks that that technology provides. And and it's a ripple effect across the industry. And I'm really relieved to hear that there is a a bipartisanship uh, recognition that technology needs to be a concerted effort rather than a political one. by political, you know what I mean by that. But yeah. uh, well, I think obviously, it might be the only issue out there today where there's any any consensus that they actually want to work across the aisle with one another. It's it's a it's a really special place to be. Maybe this is what will unite the country <laughs> and the world. Uh, but that yeah, look, I mean, be be a little facetious, but hopeful uh, and idealistic. Look, you talked about uh, a lot of the the policy makers who are starting to understand what is it from your point of view, from the industry point of view, that they must get right. They can't get this part wrong. What what do they need to understand? Well, they first need to understand that they're not just dealing with a replacement for the dollar, right? That this space, as I mentioned before, is incredibly vast and it's going to bring an element of ownership to the internet. It's going to allow people to take control of their finances. I think that the biggest thing that they need to figure out is if there is an overreaction and the regulation is too onerous, This technology is going to be built and it just won't be built in the U.S. It will be built overseas. It will be built in Latin America, in Asia, uh, in Europe. But it means that we need to actually evaluate and figure out what are the risks within the new technology, because you don't want to treat something differently. But when you're dealing with something different, you need to evaluate the risks and not assume that they're going to be the same as they were in the traditional world. So, you know, I think that we're going to get to a good spot, but there is a tremendous amount of education that needs to get done. And it's, I think, incumbent upon the industry to be a resource and to help help bridge that education gap so we can have more informed policy discussions. I mean, to your point, last year's one trillion infrastructure bill was is an example of that. It would have required uh, network validators to provide customers details. Crypto community really mobilized against the bill, asking for an amendment. For those who are new to the crypto space and listening right now and trying to figure things out, how would that have made the industry really slow down uh, to a standstill almost. Yeah, no, this was a key moment, I think, in crypto policy history last summer when, when the Senate was considering this infrastructure bill. And what was frustrating about it is there was a provision that was tucked in at the very last minute that was vetted 
with no one, no third party stakeholders, no, um, uh, you know, no, no crypto industry stakeholders. And it really was based in a misunderstanding for how these networks worked. And it would have, if you look at the broadest possible interpretation of this language, you can argue that if you're a Bitcoin miner, that's facilitating a transaction, or if you're a staking node validator, that facilitates a transaction, or if you're a software developer and you're writing code for a decentralized finance application, you could arguably be considered a broker under under the language in that in that bill. And you know the problem is those types of people don't have customers; they don't have customer information because what this bill was doing is requiring brokers of digital assets to report the name, the address, the social security number, uh, the transaction information to the government. These entities, these people don't have that information, nor do we want them to have that information, right? These are, you know, this this is the equivalent of having, you know, the armed guard who's moving cash from one bank to the other file a report with the IRS as to whose money he was moving around, right? These are these are operators of the network. And so I think that what what the outcome was, even though we actually never got the language changed, we were able to get interpretations that the intent of Congress was much narrower than a very reasonable interpretation of that language is. And so I think as we move forward with impl- implementation, we'll be in a good spot. Um, and because if not, all of these people who are working on these networks here in the United States would just have to cease operating because it would be absolutely impossible for them to comply. But I think the bigger moment was, as you mentioned, the crypto ecosystem, the community, it wasn't just the industry, it was users, it was developers, it was creators, they activated. And it all was, it was done in the most amazing way. It was all really over Twitter and other sort of these community chat rooms and forums. And there were over 41,000 phone calls that went into the Senate in the course of five days, supporting the amendment that would have fixed this language. And this wasn't because there was some you know, expensive uh, grassroots consultants that had been working on a strategy for years. No, this all happened organically within the matter of hours. And we had celebrities tweeting about it. We had the industry tweeting about it. We had members of Congress. And it was the first time that I've ever experienced in my career where a policy issue really played out over Twitter. And and it was really cool because if you recall, the, the world was not completely open back last summer. And so it was a really great way for people to still be a part of the process, even though they physically couldn't get on a plane and, and fly to Washington to have those conversations in person. Kristen, speaking of last month's executive order, it marks the U.S. government's first all-hands-on-deck approach to regulating the crypto space. Let's take a look at what we are seeing in Europe. Is there any sort of referral, reference, concerted effort, collaborative effort between continents? Well, we at the the Blockchain Association, where I work, um, we have a pretty good network of similar organizations overseas that are trying to influence their local governments there. And, And a lot of the member companies of our of our trade association Uh, do have operations in Europe. And so there's a lot of concern about what's going on over there with their MECA regulation. 
um, you know, these, there's concern that this is going to harm self-hosted wallets and have these sort of what they call know your customer or KYC requirements uh, that, that again, apply to entities that shouldn't be having that type of, of information. And I, and I think the, the challenge that we're having is that legislation really does seem to be on um, a fast track through the through the parliament, and the um, the problem is unlike in the United States where there is you know sort of established organizations such as the Blockchain Association, but other organizations as well that have been engaging with government. The efforts in Europe are you know, very sort of targeted. They're not fully developed teams. It's maybe somebody who's doing it part-time or it's maybe somebody, uh, you know, who's hired as a consultant. Like there isn't an actual organization, but there, there's definitely a real scramble right now to try to slow down some of those policies. From the U.S. perspective, we're sort of like, oh, well, maybe that will drive more people over here. But that's obviously not what we want. What we want is to see, you know, sort of uniform uh, regulation around the globe that supports this because it really is a global a global industry. Um, I would say, though, that I think a lot of the world has been waiting to see what happens here in the United States. And I think that if the U.S. starts to move forward with a better framework for how to regulate this space, that we will see countries around the world follow. So we're, we're the, the government in the U.S. is a little bit slow to the table, but I think you know now that President Biden's executive order is out and Janet Yellen has you know laid out the Treasury Department's position on digital assets, there really is a framework that's getting the ball moving. And again, it's going to take not months, but probably years for all of this to play out. We're, we're, we're advising um, our friends in Europe, but, you know, it's really sort of incumbent upon the people there to, you know, express their voice and, and make sure that, you know, their local, their local elected officials, um, you know, are accountable and, and educated so that we could get better policy. I, you know, for the longest time, uh, even among the G20, it was really Japan who was flying the flag for crypto regulations, even in the early days, talking about whether or not it was even a thing, uh, you know, and, and that that nations should be talking about it. What about the role of Asia when it comes to crypto regulation in reference uh, to how it should be laid out. We're seeing a lot of interesting things happening out of South Korea. Uh, obviously, China and India are struggling uh, and and considering, uh, and a lot of uh, policy is coming down from the top. Um, your thoughts there on how Asia can be a reference? Yeah, I mean, Asia is really interesting because you have some of the best examples of crypto regulation and some of the worst. I mean, um, there are a lot of companies, um, particularly out of Singapore, uh, but also South Korea is is very, uh, very much um, a fan of, of crypto assets and, um, you know, trying to enable um, enable them to exist in a regulated way. Um, I think that on the flip side, as you mentioned, China you know, because they have this digital currency of their own, um, they don't want to see the use of Bitcoin or other digital assets. Uh, there's been a big crackdown on Bitcoin mining in China, which, you know, worked to the advantage of the U.S. because a lot of that mining capability came over to the U.S. But it's really, um, you know, they're, they're really taking some drastic measures to force people into using their digital currency where they have total 
insight into uh, you know every transaction of all of their citizens. I think I don't think that's a model we want to see here in the U.S. But um, India has had some struggles. I think that there's some progress there. Um, you know, I think Coinbase just opened up an office there uh, recently and and operations. And so I think there's some progress in India. But um, but yeah, Asia Asia is very interesting because it's um, in some ways. Uh, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of where the U.S. is, but in other ways, uh, you know, depending on the jurisdiction, very far behind. You know, and, and you speak of so many headwinds uh, politically and and policy wise when you when you are talking to your constituents, which is basically everybody in the blockchain industry. What is how do you how does the industry navigate through through all of these really changing tides and changing tastes uh, of, of various jurisdictions. How, in an ideal world, what do you think needs to happen for innovation to truly grow alongside reference to policymakers? Yeah, well, listen, I think the people who are working, most of the people who are working in the cryptocurrency space are incredibly passionate about what they're doing. They feel very strongly that the work they're doing is going to create better systems for businesses and consumers and individuals, and that they're enabling, uh, you know, freedom, right? I mean, this is an incredibly, um, incredibly powerful, powerful tool. Um, I think that the biggest challenge we have as the industry is to better communicate what we're doing. I think there's a lot of communication within the industry. And it wasn't really until about a year ago that industry decided that they needed to show up and engage with policymakers in a real and meaningful way. But now that I think that more time and resources are being devoted to this effort, I think, you know, even groups like the Blockchain Association, our, our team has grown, our budget has grown, our, our ability to influence has grown because industry has decided that this is a priority. Look, I, I think we're, we're just uh, two sides of the same coin, Kristen. At the end of the day, more people need to understand what's happening in this space. You know, obviously, the world is just watching with such a close eye and, and with with such a heavy heart what's happening in Ukraine and uh, the crisis that's that's happening there. What we at Forecast and, and clearly everybody else in, in the blockchain uh, community saw was the role of crypto for the very first time. This was the first crisis, the first war, if you will, in the age of cryptocurrency. When you take a look at what's happening in Ukraine, how how is crypto playing a part, and and how is also that role evolving, uh, and and how we might be thinking about the use of crypto in future? It's been a wonderful tool for quickly fundraising and getting resources directly into the hands that that need them. And so some of this has been done through DAOs. Other of this, uh, others are direct contributions to local organizations on the ground. We even saw the government of Ukraine put out wallet addresses to receive funds. I mean, it's really amazing, you know, how people, individuals, even somebody sitting inside of Russia who doesn't like what's happening within their own country can fund uh, directly the Ukrainian government. So it was really interesting to see how quickly those efforts were set up. The other interesting thing is we've seen stories where People who have had no choice but to flee their homes have been able to retain 
their value, their savings, because they can take them with them on self-hosted wallets. You know, we saw lines at banks where people were trying to get their resources out. If you have those assets in crypto and you're self-custodying, you know, you can escape and still have something to rebuild your life somewhere else. And so that, I think, is also an incredibly powerful use. Uh, There has been some discussion about oh no, with all of these sanctions that the U.S. is imposing on Russia, will they be able to skirt the sanctions by using cryptocurrencies? And the answer to that is actually no. Um, There would have to be, um, for the amount of money that, that Russia needs in order to do what they need to do, they wouldn't be able to pay and move those money, that money around blockchains without going detected. Because remember, these public blockchains are public. Anybody can go in and, and see the transactions. And so even a sophisticated money launderer would not be able to move the volume of, of funds that Russia needs for this for this war. And I think the good news is that the U.S. Treasury Department and the White House understand this and recognize this. Um, crypto companies in the U.S. have to comply with the same banking sanctions that, um, that, that traditional financial institutions have to comply with. So those entities, the, the U.S. crypto companies, you know, are all on board in blocking certain, certain people from, from being able to utilize their networks. But this kind of broader concern about, you know, crypto being used for sanctions evasion, we're, we're just not seeing it. People think that uh, with with activity in stablecoins surging over 75 percent on the day of the invasion, that this could be the coming of age. And when you have stablecoins predominantly backed by the U.S. dollar and it goes back to where we started this conversation, that the race is still kind of mid leg, that it's being defined as the race goes on. And so where is the finish line? Yeah, no, I, I like that. We don't know where the finish line is, but we're, yes, we're definitely in a race. That That's for sure. Um, no, I think that stable coins um, have a tremendous potential. And uh, yeah, we, when it comes to Russia, we want to make sure that the innocent people who are inside of Russia you know, are able to live their lives and own their own assets and maybe even help their friends in Ukraine. And so we want to go after the billionaires. We want to go after Putin. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of people that are trying to live their lives and raise their families and be with their friends. And, you know, we don't want to stifle the type of, you know, sort of human activity that that, you know, can it maybe help be part of the solution um, uh, in, to this, this horrible problem that we're facing over there right now. And this might be completely idealistic, but if this is a system that can allow all of us to live together and interact and transact with each other in a way that is meaningful for the collective, minus borders, minus jurisdictions, minus all of those, you know, old world uh, lines in the sand that were drawn. Um, this could this could potentially be that technology, which is exciting for a lot of people, for sure. Thank you for, for helping us realize some of that potential today and helping us understand it. Really appreciate you joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Ian Thanks for thanks for having me. And thank you, audience, for joining us on this latest episode of Word on the Block. I'm Angie Lau, Forecast Editor-in-Chief. Until the next time. 